The writing is on the wall. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? The writing is on the wall. Now, typically, we hear that phrase when something bad is about to happen or someone's fate has been sealed, right? And so if you're watching a football game or a basketball game and your favorite team goes down by like two touchdowns late in the fourth quarter, you might hear the announcer say something like, the writing is on the wall for the Florida Gators, you know, or the Tennessee Volunteers or the Alabama Crimson Tide, although that's very rare that they would say that, right? So, so you, might, you might hear that, right? The writing's on the wall or maybe a, uh, a politician has a scandal and so the talking political heads on CNN or, or Fox or whatever poison you choose, they're, they're, they might say the writing is on the wall for that, that politician, right? They, they had a scandal or maybe you're watching, uh, you, maybe you're like me, you enjoy watching nature documentaries like on the Discovery Channel and a, a baby seal like jumps into shark infested waters and say the writing is on the wall for that little baby seal. That, that's how we use it in our culture. Everybody knows that phrase, but nobody knows where it comes from. I'm about to tell you where it comes from. Daniel chapter five, that's actually where we get that very common phrase in our culture today. Now, in some sense, the writing is on the wall for all of us, isn't it? I mean, for some of us, it, it takes a number of years, maybe a couple of decades for us to kind of get there. For others of us, it comes uh, out of the blue, right? It's, it's a shock, it's a, it's a surprise. I can remember uh, three deaths that really have shocked me in my lifetime. Now, for most of you, uh, if you've lived for any amount of time, I'm sure you've got your own memories of deaths that just happened. You know, you turned your phone on in the morning or you turn the news on, you're like, what? What? I can't believe they're gone. So for, so for me, there were three. The first was when I was in high school when Princess Diana died. So if you're over 35, you probably remember that, right? I was in high school and uh, Princess Diana was like this really intelligent, really attractive, uh, really globally beloved figure. She had a heart for the poor. Um, she was just, she was loved by almost everyone. In the summer of 1997, she was in Paris. She left an establishment. Uh, her driver was driving her and they were being chased by the paparazzi in Paris and her driver lost control of the vehicle in a tunnel, slammed into the side of the tunnel and she was gone, 36 years old. The second death that I remember really surprising me seven or eight years ago was Michael Jackson. Right? So, so if you're older than like 25, you probably remember Michael Jackson, arguably the most influential entertainer of our era, right? The moonwalker, 80s and 90s, just kind of a legend. Took too many uh, uh, sleeping medications or, or mixed the wrong medications and, and never woke up. 50 years old, just like that, gone. The one that probably impacted me most, that was the most recent, just a couple years ago, was Kobe Bryant, right? And that, that's because we were basically the, the same age, right? This guy who was just a legend, right? One of the best basketball players to ever walk the face of the planet in the prime of his life, man, fit, in shape, right? Gets in a helicopter in Los Angeles. He's taking his daughter to basketball practice, which he did all the time, did all the time. But on that fateful day, there was a lot of fog, right? And the pilot couldn't see, and he flew that helicopter right into the side of the mountain. Kobe Bryant's gone, age 41. Now, here's the thing. For, for all three of those people here, I guarantee you, none of them woke up on those fateful mornings and thought, this is gonna be my last day on planet Earth. None, none of them drank their cup of coffee that morning and thought, this is gonna be the last cup of coffee I ever have. Or this is gonna be the last time I call my mom and tell her I love her. This is gonna be the last time I hug my kid and tell him I love her. None of them had any idea that that was gonna be their last day day on planet earth in an instant they were gone see guys here, here's the thing none of us were promised a full healthy happy 
80 or 90 years on planet Earth. Now that, that will happen for some of us and, and praise God when he chooses to, to bless us with a long, happy, healthy life, but he doesn't owe any of us a long, happy, healthy life. Now you could be sitting there thinking, Chris, well that is a morbid thought, man. I came to church to be encouraged today. You are messing up my weekend mojo. Fair enough. But here's my counter argument to that. I, I think it's only when we deal with the writing on our own wall that we truly get to live the best version of life that God has for us. And that's what we're gonna draw out of Daniel chapter five this morning. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, go ahead and go there. Daniel chapter five in your Old Testament, on your app, on your phone, on your uh, real print Bible if you got one. And uh, last week in chapter four, we saw the miraculous conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. So if you are here last week, you uh, remember that. He's this arrogant king, pompous king, gets humbled by God, uh, repents, turns to God. By the end of the chapter, he's actually writing worship songs to God. It's just an incredible thing. Um, and what I need you to know is that there's a gap of many years between the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, right? So 20 some odd years go by. So as we step into chapter five, you need to know Nebuchadnezzar is now dead. Daniel is now an old man. Scholars believe he's likely 80, 82 years old. And Nebuchadnezzar's bratty grandson, Belshazzar, is now the, the king of the city of Babylon. Now, historians tell us that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, was actually the emperor of Babylon, but he had given his kingship to his son, his bratty little son, Belshazzar, to rule the city of Babylon, all right? And so even though he's called the, the king in chapter five, he really is kind of the second in command, right? So you got the emperor of the whole, the whole empire, and then you got the, the king of Babylon, the city, and that's Belshazzar, the, uh, the sunny-nosed uh, little uh, shrimp of a grandson of the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar. He, as I read this, this is what came to my mind. What came to my mind is this guy, this king, is like the stereotypical trust fund baby, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like I, I grew up with a couple of those in my, in my high school. You probably, probably did too. Kids that had really rich parents, right? Had an entitlement problem. Never earned a darn thing in their life. But as soon as they hit 16, they're driving $70,000 vehicles and wearing the designer clothes, right? Walking around like they're better than everybody else, right? You know what I'm talking about. And if that's you, just don't be that way, right? Just, just, just stop. But, that, but that's, that's Belshazzar, right? He's a trust fund baby. Is Nebuchadnezzar's snotty-nosed grandson. This, this is his story. That's what we're gonna get into. And God has, has sovereignly given us his story because there are some deep, significant lessons that we're intended to draw out and then apply to our lives. And that's what we're gonna look at today in Daniel chapter five. But let's pause just for a second and ask God to help us as we dive in. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and my guess is every single person in the room watching online has something that's gnawing in the back of their heads, God. We all walk in here with either uh, health problems or relational challenges or uh, financial issues, whatever it is, God. And so I just ask that, that by your spirit and the power of your word that you would allow us to remove those things just for the next 30, 35 minutes, God. That you would remove these things. If our mind is, is hazy and foggy, that you would, you would part, the, part the haze so that we could see you clearly. The, uh, these folks don't need to hear a word from me. They need to hear a word from their maker. And so I just ask that you would remove me, get me out of the way, speak to your people through your word by the power of your spirit. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Daniel chapter five, beginning in verse one, says this. 
King Belshazzar, right? This is a little trust fund baby we talked about, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, scholars tell us the reason that Daniel wrote it that way, that he drank wine in front of the thousand. This is a, a cultural way of showing off. All right, so, so he, Belshazzar's drinking a lot. He's getting drunk. He's, he's doing keg stands on the table as people chant his name, right? He's, he's getting wasted, and he wants everybody to see him. So this is like a frat party. Now, if you've never been to a frat party, you're not missing anything. It's a bunch of morons doing moronic things. But this is what Belshazzar is doing. This is his party. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, now again, that's his terminology for uh, he's a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. It was actually his grandfather, not his father. But, but Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So if you remember all the way back to Daniel chapter one, Nebuchadnezzar, remember he, he invades Judah, takes a bunch of the Jews as prisoners of war. He also goes into the temple and he ransacks the temple. He gets all these gold vessels and silver vessels out of the temple that were consecrated for worship to the God of the Bible, and he takes them back to Babylon. So they apparently been sitting collecting dust in a closet somewhere, and, uh, and his grandson, Belshazzar, is now, man, he's, he's having the time of his life. He's partying it up. He's like, man, y'all bring those things from Jerusalem. Bring those things that are consecrated to God. We're gonna drink wine out of those things. The scholars even tell us that the fact that his concubines were there, and I don't know how else to say it, but concubines were basically sex slaves. So the fact that not only his wives were there, but his concubines were there, tells us that this feast was a, it was a vile party. Right? Like this is, this is a messed up party. Uh, this is not a godly party. This is not like a Bible study where people are like drinking a little bit of wine, talking about the goodness of God. Right? This, is, this, is, this is a wicked party. This is drunkenness. This is debauchery. This is blasphemy. All rolled into one. Verse three. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of the God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So now, now they're worshiping their false Babylonian gods on top of everything else. So just add idolatry to the list of sins that they're committing at this party. Now, here's what's fascinating, and we don't find this out till, till later on in, in the chapter, but uh, historians tell us to confirm this as well, that as this party was going on, the Persian army was encamped outside of the city walls. So as Belshazzar is, is doing keg stands and just mocking God and drinking out of the vessels of the temple of God, the, the most fierce army in the world, the Persian army, is sitting right outside his gates. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Bible scholars and historians tell us that Belshazzar had to have known that was the case. He had to have known because he would have been getting reports from other Babylonian cities that were falling one by one to the Persian army. So he had to have known. So the question then becomes, why on earth is he partying when he knows the most fearsome, ferocious army on planet earth is sitting right outside of the city gates? Now, some have speculated maybe he was just sticking his head in the sand. He knew it was coming, nothing he could do about it, and so he just didn't want to think about it. Some scholars think that was the case. And the reality is, I think a lot of us today, that's how we cope with our reality, right? We just stick our head in the sands. We know, we know what's coming. We don't want to think about it. So we just occupy ourselves. We just kind of distract ourselves with 
entertainment, with social media, with food, with drink, whatever it is. It's kind of like when I have a, a dental work scheduled, man. Like that morning, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, I'm mowing the grass. Like I, I don't want to think about that nurse that's about to jab five needles into my, my mouth and then the dentist that's about to jackhammer a hole into my tooth. And like, I don't want to think of it, right? So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to occupy myself so I don't have to think. I got my head in the sand. I don't want to know. I don't want to think about it. And so that could have been the case with Belshazzar. Like he knew what was coming, just didn't want to think about it. Or, and I think the more likely scenario is, listen, y'all, he was just that arrogant. He was just that arrogant. Ancient historians, and you can look this up. This is all extra biblical, all recorded in history. Um, Babylon had some of the walls outside of the city were over 300 feet tall, 30 stories high. The, the, the walls that defended and circled the city of Babylon were so wide that chariots could ride on top of the wall. I mean, it was a massive fortified city. It was considered in ancient times the city that could not be conquered. Like humanly speaking, that's a city you will ne- no army will ever conquer. In fact, historians tell us that they had enough food and drink for, to last them uh, 20 years. Right? So even if they got cut off from the rest of the world, they could all survive for, for 20. They were the first preppers, right? So if you got some peanut butter in your basement, some bottles of water, that's not your idea. They were doing it 2,600 years ago. Now, there, there was just one very small tactical error oversight in that fortified city. Now, this, is, this is fascinating. This is all historical. You can look it up. The Euphrates River ran north to south. And the Babylonians were brilliant because they built their city so that the river, the Euphrates River, would run right under the gates of the city wall. So they would have fresh water all the time. Brilliant, right? The only problem is the Persian army figured out how to divert temporarily the Euphrates River. And so once that riverbed was dry because they dammed it up, they were able to march in right on the the riverbed, right under the wall into the city of Babylon. And they never saw it coming. They're living it up. They're partying it up. And we got, the, we got the biggest walls in the world. We got the toughest army. Man, we, we are safe. We got food for 20 years. Let them hang out outside, man. We're gonna live it up. And I think, man, what a picture for us. How many of us live arrogant lives just like that? Man, like, man, man I got everything that I need. I'm young. I'm gonna live it up. I'm gonna party it. And yet judgment is sitting right outside the gates of our own life. That's what Belshazzar is doing, man. He's partying it up. He's defying God. The enemy is right outside his gate. Now, we have an expression for this in our culture. It's called whistling past the graveyard. You guys heard that expression before, whistling past the graveyard? That, that, that just means pretending that you're not afraid when you actually are afraid or should be afraid. And I think that's how a lot of people in our culture live their lives. Just kind of arrogantly pretending that death will never come knocking on their door. And so truth number one, write this down if you're a note taker. Truth number one on the screen is for you. Whistling past the graveyard is not advisable. It's not advisable. Friends, sticking your head in the sand is not a strategy to win at life. I want you to listen to the words of King Solomon, known as uh, one of the wisest men to ever live. He wrote this in an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. This will be on the screens for you. Solomon writes this. Better to spend time at funerals than at parties. Say, what? After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, 
while a fool thinks only about having a good time. King Solomon. Psalm 90 says this, So teach us, O Lord, to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Now this at least brings to my mind the story in the New Testament of the rich fool. Many of you guys are probably familiar uh, with, with that story of the, of the rich fool, right? So he gets blessed with all this material stuff, right? And, and instead of getting what he needs and then beginning to like invest in the kingdom of God or help the poor or something like that, what does he do? He tears down his barns and builds bigger barns so he can store more junk for himself, right? And in this New Testament story, he actually has a conversation with himself. He talks to himself. Some of y'all talk to yourselves too, right? You have those monologues in your head. And so he has this conversation with himself and he says, self, man, you have plenty for your whole life. Just eat, drink, and be merry. And the story says, in that very moment, God responded and said, you fool. You fool, this very night, your soul will be required of you. And I say all that to say this, whistling past the graveyard is not advisable, friend. Wisdom says, number your days. Consider your mortality. Live in light of the inevitability of your own death. There were a couple years ago, I, um, I wouldn't call myself a history buff, but I do, I do like history. I like studying history. I like uh, studying empires and kingdoms and how they, they rise and fall and all these kind of things. And I was watching this thing on the, the Roman Empire. Some of you probably have, have heard this story, but uh, in Rome, when they would have a, a victory, they would go conquer a people. The Roman general and the army would come back into the city. They would throw these opulent celebrations, parades, parties, right? And so the, the general would be in a horse-drawn carriage, and he would kind of ride through the streets of Rome. People would be singing his name. People would be chanting, right? The, the women would throw, like, flower petals and stuff. And Caesar ordered that, that he, every time this happened, that there was a slave that had one job that was to ride in the carriage with a Roman general as he received all of this praise riding through the, the, the middle of the city of Rome. And this slave had one job, and it, his one job was to, to say two words over and over and over again to the Roman general who was being praised. Those two words were memento mori. So that's all he would say. He would just whisper in his ear over and over again, memento mori, Latin for remember you will die. So as people were showering these Roman generals with praise, there was someone right in his ear every five or 10 seconds saying, remember you will die. Remember you will die. Remember this is not forever because they figured out that the human beings could only really operate at their optimum level when they live in light of reality, of our own mortality. And this is what we're, we're getting out of Daniel chapter five as well. So Belshazzar, he doesn't get it. The party is raging. The wine is flowing. Despicable, unspeakable acts are happening in the party. And out of nowhere, Belshazzar notices a severed human hand begin to write on the wall of the party house. So I'm just, I'm just guessing his first instinct is probably like try to clear his eyes and look in his cup like, man, who, who put something in my cup, right? And once he realizes that it's, it's not him being too drunk, he instinctively knows that it's something supernatural that's happening. And we don't have time to read the whole text. You can read it uh, uh, later on. Uh, but Daniel tells us that, that the young king's face goes white. He goes white as a ghost as he sees this. It says that his knees begin to knock together or his knees give away. In fact, some scholars suggest that, that in the original Aramaic, this actually means that he lost control of his bowels and his bladder at the same time. 
You want to mess up uh, the mood of any party? Just pee yourself, poop yourself, right? Are you, ever, you ever heard the term party pooper? It comes from Daniel chapter 5. <laughs> Just kidding. You shouldn't listen to everything I say. That's it. Party's over, right? The king just dirtied himself up, right? The kid, the kid is terrified. He's terrified. He knows this is the hand of God instinctively. And so what does he do? What does one do when this happens after you go to the bathroom and clean yourself up and, you know, come, come back out? Does he turn to the God of Daniel that his grandfather worshiped? No, he doesn't. He calls in all the pagan wise men of his culture and the enchanters and the fortune tellers and the magicians. And listen, guys, they are no help to him at all, just like they were no help to his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. And don't just gloss over that like, yeah, well, that, they were superstitious and dumb and that's why they had all that and that's not a problem for us. Listen, guys, in our culture, we have our own version of wise men, don't we? Now, now they may not be like palace enchanters or fortune tellers or magicians, but how many people in our culture today are influenced by astrology? Like, it's, ama it's amazing to me. I actually read some, some stats this last week. Younger generations, so millennials, the generation right, right before mine and G... Uh, generation Z, they're, they're all into astrology. Like they believe this, like, hey man, are you a Capricorn? Oh, cool, dude, I'm a Pisces. That means like we jive together and the moon and start like all this kind of stuff, right? We, ha we have our own cultural wise men. And if it's not that, think about this. What about the ethics and the values of Hollywood, for instance? How influential is that over our culture? Or maybe the pop music industry or celebrities or social media influencers or maybe your friends at school who are far from the Lord. Or maybe your friends at work or wherever it is. Man, we got our own set of wise men that we tend to go to for answers. And here's truth number two on the screens for you. Number two, the wise men of our culture have no answers for us either, friend. They couldn't help Nebuchadnezzar 2,600 years ago. They couldn't help his bratty little grandson Belshazzar, and they don't have any help for, they got nothing for us today either. The cultural wise man of, of politics and political parties and politicians that you think are gonna be your savior, they're not. Influencers, self-help gurus, listen friend, they got nothing for you. They are all doors that lead to empty rooms. But there is a door that leads to the solutions in life and we're gonna get to that in just a minute. Verse 10. Daniel continues, the queen, now we know this is not his wife because the text already tells us that his wives were partying with him as concubines and so this is, this is queen mother who's showing up, right? This is the, likely the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, how many of you know when mom shows up at a party, that's not good, right? If you're 18, you're throwing a party, 20, you're throwing a party and mom walks in the front door, uh, it's going sideways. So the queen mom shows up because of the words of the king and his lord. So she, she hears the commotion from her palace uh, bedroom, right? And she came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, this is kind of a formal greeting that you would, anybody would give the king, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. She can tell, he's, man, he looks as white as a ghost. There is a man in your kingdom in whom 
is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, really grandfather, just kind of word for descendant, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. So his mom was like, I know a dude. Relax, son. Sit down. Stop hyperventilating. Take some deep breaths. I know a dude. Now, when I have a problem, right, my car breaks down or something's going wrong and someone says, hey, I know a dude, that's good, right? I'm glad you know a dude. Give me his number. Right? I, need some, I need some help here. So I'm glad that you know a dude. She said, I know, I know a guy. Daniel, apparently scholars tell us, has been retired at this point to the countryside. Remember, he was the right-hand man of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the great king. But Belshazzar, the grandson, has totally forgotten about him. So he's just living out, you know, by a lake in some shack, totally forgotten. And the queen says to her son, hey, listen, you need, there's a godly old man that still lives in our kingdom. You need to call him out of retirement because, listen, he knows God. He knows God. And I think, as I read this, I thought, man, what an aspiration for all of us. In our old age, that people in the Christ would say, man, that old dude over there, that old lady over there, they know God. They know God. You got problems. You need to go talk to him. You need to go talk to her. They have a relationship with the creator of the universe. What an aspiration. And so she calls. He calls for Daniel, and they go and wake him up, and he's in his, his retirement home, and they're like, hey, man, the, the, the king wants to talk to you, and Daniel strolls up into the party, and I just picture this like a, a scene out of The Godfather, right? Daniel strolls in, and he's like, what you got for me, you know? What you got for me? So Daniel, Daniel strolls in, verse 16, and the king says to him, he, he strolls in, and he says, I have heard that you could give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing on the wall and make it known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold around your neck. He's like, man, I'm gonna make you a rapper, right? I'm gonna give you some Air Jordans, give you a grill, gold chain, all this kind of stuff. And then I'll, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Now remember, third ruler, because his father, Nebuchadnezzar, was the emperor. He was the king, so Daniel would be, then be number, number three. That's the promise. Hey, if you can tell me what that means, I'll make you the third most powerful man in my kingdom. Now, I love Daniel's response here. Now, remember, he's in his 80s. And I think uh, that's one of the things I, I love most about folks when they get older is, is apparently at some point you stop caring what people think at all and you just say what you want, all right? Now, you, if you got grandparents that are older, whatever, maybe you're there, you know what I'm talking about. And I think that's the thing I look forward to most about getting old myself, right? Just not gonna care. I'll just say what I want. They're like, ah, don't worry about it. It's grandpa, you know? Verse 17. This is gangster Grandpa Daniel. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself, king, and give your rewards to another. He's like, man, you're such an adult. I'm 85 years old. I don't want to be a rapper. I don't want your gold chain. I don't need any of this. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So here it comes, verse 18. O king, the most high God, my God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he was fed grass like an ox. We read this story last week. If you missed it, you can go back, catch it on our website. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Now that is a chilling statement, isn't it? Because Daniel says, hey man, you knew all this about God. You, you saw this lived out in your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, kid, you knew better. This is not ignorance, this is arrogance. Right, you were a little kid and you watched your granddad become a follower of God. You watched the life transformation in front of your eyes and still you rebel against God and you mock him. Man, you were a teenager when I was in the palace telling Bible stories to the whole king's court about God. You're not ignorant, you're arrogant. You knew better. And I just wonder how many of us in the room, how many of us watching online right now, man, 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 you know better. You know better. You were raised by a godly mama. You were raised by godly grandparents. You grew up in a God-fearing church. You know better than to walk in the sin that you're currently walking in. You're not ignorant of the truth. You're just arrogant. And God has a way of dealing with arrogance in our hearts. Look at verse 23. Daniel continues. He's just grilling this king. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. That, my friends, is never advisable. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. They're fake gods. All your gods are fake. But the God in whose hand is your breath, I love that statement, King, the breath in your lungs doesn't even belong to you. It is a gift from the God of heaven. In whose hand is your breath, in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. I read recently about a house church movement in, in Asia, and they were seeing incredible success in an area where Christianity was persecuted heavily and um, they, lots of people coming to faith from Muslim backgrounds, and they would gather on Sunday morning, uh, kind of like we are right now, and they would study passages of the Bible, but they would do something very unique. They would do something different than, than we do. They would tell them at the end of the Bible, they would study Daniel 5 or Matthew 12 or whatever it was. And they would tell them as they dismissed, don't, don't come back until you've put this into practice. Until you've found a way to put these truths into practice in your life, and you can tell us next week how you put it into practice don't come back. In other words, you don't need Daniel 6 until you, until you start living Daniel 5. And as I, as I studied, I, I thought in my mind, like, man, I wonder, I wonder how that would go over in the church in America. This obe obedience-based discipleship, right? If I said, hey, listen, guys, don't, until you apply Daniel chapter 5, I don't want to see you again. You don't need Daniel chapter 6 until you start living out Daniel chapter 5. I would never see any of y'all, you know? 
This is called obedience-based discipleship. See, for most of us, most of us, it's not a knowledge issue, it's an obedience issue. Now, there's some of you, and praise God, you're, you're new to the faith, you're new Christians, and, and for you, it really is a knowledge issue. Like, you're new, you don't, you just, you're, you're kind of ignorant, and, that, and that's fine, that's okay, because you're new to the faith. But for most of us, for most of us, our spiritual lives are not stunted due to a knowledge deficiency, but because of an obedience deficiency. And so was the case with Belshazzar. And let that be a lesson to us today as Americans in Asheville in 2022. Now Daniel's gonna give the interpretation of this writing on the wall, right? Verse 25, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is Aramaic, four words, literally means this. Numbered, numbered, weighed and divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed and divided. You can see why the king was, was confused. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 28, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night, what a chilling statement. That very night, his life was required of him. And that's truth number three for you on the screens. God's justice and judgment, friend, are very, very real. Now, we don't like to talk about this in church in the Western world, right? As Western Christians, we love to talk about God's grace and his love and his forgiveness and his mercy as we should. Those are glorious truths, man. We, we should look at those things. But listen, guys, his justice is every bit a part of his holy attributes as his love. I heard on a podcast a few years ago, I think it was a missionary or an anthropologist who spent a lot of time um, working with churches and Christians outside of the United States, outside of the Western world. And what he was saying is that Christians, Eastern Christians in Africa and the Middle East and Asia, they don't struggle with the justice of God like we do. You know what they struggle with? They struggle with the love of God. Because you gotta understand, most of these believers have grown up under genocide, under, under war-torn war conditions. A lot of them have been oppressed by radical Islamic groups. And so they love, they love passages about God's justice, right? That's the stuff they put on their coffee cups and t-shirts, right? So they're like, of course God is just, he's good. Of course God is gonna judge our oppressors because he's a good father, he cares about us. What they struggle with are biblical commands like this, love your enemies. They're like, wait, so, but that tribe, of, I watched them cut my mom's head off when I was five. I, you're telling me I'm supposed to love, why, why, are you, why are you Americans putting that on a coffee cup? Tea? That is so hard, that is impossibly hard. How am I gonna love my enemies? They struggle with passages like, bless those who curse you. I watched them rape my sister when she was 14. You gonna tell me to, to bless? This is so hard. How, how can you American Christians just accept this? Love your neighbor as yourself. Man, that, that's so hard. These truths are so hard. 
And it's funny for them, all the judgment passages in the Old Testament that we struggle with as Westerners, they're like, man, those are warm blankets to us as Eastern Christians. And all the verses that we like to throw in coffee cups and t-shirts, man, really hard for them. It is cultural perspective. The point is this, God is loving, yes, but he is also just. And his judgment is coming and you should prepare yourself. That's the message of Daniel chapter five. Because listen guys, it could, just like for Belshazzar, it could be sudden. You're not promised 80 years. You're not promised, not, statistically at this time next year, the summer of 2023, some of you will not be here. You'll be in eternity. Some of you may not be here next week. We're not promised another breath, another day. So do not harden your heart against the calling of the Holy Spirit. If he's wooing you, if he's calling you home, listen and respond. And that leads us right into truth number four. We're almost done here. Truth number four, the writing is on the wall of your life. Friend, your days have been numbered. And we all know this in our culture. That's why we say things like, we say things like, man, I got these things on my bucket list. I met a lady after the 915 who was visiting from Switzerland. And I said, hey, visiting your homeland is on my bucket list. We, we all say that. That's just another way of saying, I know I'm not gonna live forever. I know my life has an expiration date. And you would be right. Your days, friend, have been numbered as have mine. Your life will be weighed and found deficient as will mine. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans when he said, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Later on, he goes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Do you know what that word in the original Greek means? All? It means everyone. It means all y'all. All us. Everybody under the sound of my voice. If you're in this room, if you're watching online, that includes all of us. We've all fallen short. None of us are good enough to get to God on our own merits. None of us are a good person, quote unquote. And you will be divided from your kingdom. You actually will be divided from your very life. It will be required of you at some point in time. If you're thinking, well, that's pretty depressing. Wish I wouldn't have come to church today. Listen, that would be depressing if it weren't for the last truth. Number five, this is it. On the screens for you. Number five, the finger of God has appeared for you. Not just to you, but for you. Now, this is interesting. I didn't know this until I really dug in this week. But whenever the Bible uses the terminology of the finger of God, something amazing is always about to happen. Let me show you what I mean. So it appears in the Old Testament, that word, or the wording finger of God, and the plagues break out in Egypt, right? As, as a means to rescue God's people from their oppressors. The finger of God appears again, and the 10 commandments are written for his people, right? In the Old Testament, oftentimes the finger of God was tied to, to judgment. In the New Testament, we begin to see a, see a bit of a paradigm shift. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, you can go read this on your own time, really incredible. Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons. He's feeding hungry people. He's performing all these miracles. And then he makes a statement where he essentially says, I'm doing all of this by the finger of God. Go read it in Luke. Jesus is saying, in other words, you are seeing the finger of God in this generation through me. Jesus is going, I am the finger of God. And so, man, I don't know, maybe you're out there and you're thinking, man, okay, that's an interesting you know, passage, message, whatever. Not sure, kind of on the fence about all this stuff. Maybe if God would appear to me and write something on my bedroom wall, I would believe. 
And I would just say to you, don't, can't, can't you see he's, he hasn't just written four measly words on a wall. He's written you a whole book. He's written you a whole book. And what's more, Jesus has come so that you might actually see the finger of God, the power of God, wrapped in human flesh, living a perfect life that you should have lived but you couldn't because you're a fallen sinner just like I am. And dying the brutal death that you should die to give you life so that, listen, when you stand before God on that final day of judgment, listen to me, friend, you will stand before God on that final day of judgment and you will be alone on that day. You will not stand there on the merits of your godly grandfather or your uncle who was a Baptist preacher or anything. You will stand before God yourself. And on that day, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, just like we saw Jessa getting baptized, if you've done that, if you've given your life to Jesus, here's the picture, and we're gonna close with this. Don't miss this. I want you to, want you to see this. Here's the picture. When we get up there, we stand before God. If we're in Christ, Jesus removes all the bad stuff from our side of the scale, all of our sin all of our rebellion, all of those things that you're ashamed about and you hope nobody ever finds out about, all those secret thoughts in your mind and your heart that you're ashamed of and you pray nobody ever even knows that you think those. Jesus is gonna take all of those off that side of your scale and then God is gonna place the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection on your side of the scale and as it smashes to the ground, God the Father is gonna go, they're innocent! That's my son, that's my daughter. Welcome to your kingdom, welcome to my kingdom. And on that day, believer, we're gonna have a real party. Not some goofy frat party like Belshazzar with keg stands, but a real party in a real kingdom with a real king who will wipe away every tear from your eye and who will right every wrong. And we will feast and we will party in eternity, forever, in the presence and the glory of the one who stooped low to lift us high. And we're gonna celebrate that now as we take the bread and the cup as the band comes. Let me pray for us real quick and we'll do that. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. These timeless scriptures that tell us not what we wanna hear but what we need to hear. Thank you for being a complete God, a good God, a comprehensive God, a God of, of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and all of those things. And yet, because you are perfect and because you are holy, also a just God. So you have to judge sin. You have to judge rebellion. Your character requires it. And so help us to embrace not just your love, not just your forgiveness, but the fact that you are a just God. Help us embrace that as a good component of who you are as a good dad. Help us not to take our own sin lightly, God. Would you grieve us over our sin? Would you help us to see our own sin the way that you see it? Would you help us to weep over our sin? Not to celebrate it? Not to embrace it? but to turn from it and run into your arms and say, God, I can't, I can't live this life that you're asking me to live in my own strength and my own power. I don't have enough willpower. Like, I, I need you. Like, God, if you don't show up in my life today, I'm done, I'm toast, I can't do it. God, I need you. If you don't show up, I'm done. 
So would you lead me? Would you guide me by your spirit? Would you give me the words to say today to my classmates and my colleagues and my wife and my kids? Because they don't need to hear from me. They need to see you through me. God, thank you for being that kind of God that walks with us. God, thank you that your finger has appeared for us and your son, Jesus, that he went to that cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago and he shed his blood to free us, to give us forgiveness, to give us an abundant life now and an eternity. God, we could never thank you enough for coming on that rescue mission for us that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn, only because you loved us enough. So God, as we celebrate now, as we take this cracker and we remember your broken body on that cross all those years ago, your body mangled for us. And then we take that cup and we drink that juice that represents your blood that spilled out all over that mountain in Jerusalem all those years ago to set us free. Help this not just be another ritual that we go through mindlessly. God, help us be in the moment. Help us experience it in a tangible way as we, as we taste the juice, as we touch the bread. And we would celebrate in a very real way what you've done for us. We pray it on the strong name of Jesus. Amen.